Well, congratulations, graduates. Always exciting to see a group of people that have completed an aspect of study and are now taking the next step, whatever that might be. And it's always an encouraging time as parents, especially, to watch your kids grow and, and now taking their next steps in their journey. And as a church, we do want to be fervent to pray for graduates and those that are, that are taking the next steps in their journey that, quite frankly, they would stay true to the Word of God. That is the, probably the greatest concern always is the second you put away the Bible and you're no longer listening to the Scriptures as your primary voice in your life, you're, um, you're in big trouble. And this world is always trying to lure you away, which is why we are speaking about wind advisories. The wind advisories we understand are because in Scripture we are told to quit being like children. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. We have an incredible mission as individuals and as a church. This mission has been given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to literally rescue souls from the grips of hell. As we go into our daily lives, we, we carry this mission with us wherever we go in the way that we shepherd our families and disciple our kids. When we go into our schools and into our workplaces, the mission doesn't change whether we travel abroad. It doesn't, everything looks the same when it comes to the mission because God has given us this charge to take the gospel into all the world. So our cause is great. When someone dies without Christ, they separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell and torment and judgment, forever separate from God, where there is no grace, there's no mercy there, there's no blessing, no kindness, no goodness. I don't desire anybody to go to hell. And neither does the Lord. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But we obviously know that people every day die without Christ because they've rejected the truth of God's Word. They've rejected the witness of creation. They've rejected the witness of the conscience that God has placed in them to guide them into truth. And they rejected that. But it doesn't change our mission. And I think about as our church and even in my own personal walk with God, the enemy that is always opposing God's mission if we know distinctly what we're about as people and as a church, then you can bet we're going to have an enemy that will always oppose that. The enemy of God is Satan, and obviously he was a created angel whose name was Lucifer. He had a specific job title in heaven. He was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. He was made of special jewels and musical instruments. He was beautiful. His, his beauty was beyond our comprehension, and he was full of wisdom. He had a specific task in front of him, and that as is the anointed cherub that covered over the throne, he would lead the angelic host in worship. And sadly, one day, pride rose up in his heart, and he declared that he would exalt his throne above God's throne, and he would be like the Most High. He desired the worship that was being given to the Lord. He desired that worship for himself. And God cast him down and his name changed from Lucifer to Satan, the devil, the dragon, who is still operative today and it's sometimes hard to comprehend. Why did God not just wipe him out and sin would have never entered into the equation? Well, we see in Scripture when God created mankind and put Adam and Eve into the garden and gave them all the things that pertain to life and even godliness. They have everything they need right there. 
And yet they still rejected the truth of God's word. And Satan was able to, through subtlety and deception, to lure them in, to stray away from God's words. And when that happened, sin entered into the world, death by sin. So death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We now face this plight of disease and destruction and death and every calamity that goes with it because why? Sin entered into the world. We have an enemy. And this enemy is trying to lure me away constantly from the Scriptures to now infuse things that seemed true, but it may be 90% true but 10% false, which makes it completely false. And he's very subtle and crafty in his methods. It is what this text is actually teaching about in Ephesians 4, that we would be no more children in our spiritual faith and in our maturity. This text actually gives me, in the totality of the context of this, is speaking about as the local church that God gives pastors and teachers to the church for the purpose of perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry, Why would that, that we would come into a maturity, that we would come into this unity of faith to the knowledge of the Son of God, and that we would mature in our faith to be like Christ. And that's part of my role in the role of our pastors of our church is to be teachers and preachers of God's truth. But it's for all of us that we would grow together in study, in our individual studies, in group situations where we're learning the Word of God together to grow together in faith. Why? That we would no longer be children. Children are unlearned, they're unskilled in the terms of this context. They're tossed to and fro when you think about the vision of someone being on the sea like the, like the image we saw at the beginning with the waves that are moving and pushing you about where you don't want to go but you have no seemed control of how not to get there. You're tossed to and fro. You're carried about, literally driven away or carried about in doubt and disillusionment. By these winds of doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. And this wind is blowing outside of the church. Our culture constantly is blowing a wind of teaching. Ephesians 2 calls this the course of the world. That we follow this course that, this, that is going according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself has established a course that this world follows. It's why there's a theme about those who are not Christ followers, there's a theme that kind of gets driven throughout all culture trying to push this on everyone all the time because that's the course of the world. And the church often staggers in this and we get on our heels and we don't know what to do with it because we want to be loving and kind and gracious to all people and we always should. Love is always the right method. Graciousness is the way of God. But there is a truth to be spoken at the same time and to hold fast and clinging then to the truth of God's Word and not wavering. Not tossed to and fro. We stand firm on a foundation and on a sure anchor and that anchor is Christ and He does not move. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. This doctrine that comes is outside the church. Sometimes it sows in the church where it's, it's, it's false. It's, it's taking words out of context and verses out of context to create an entire ideology or philosophy of ministry that is contrary to Jesus. It's by the trickery of men, which simply means it's deception like, a, like you would see with a dice player where they cheat and they're trying to defraud. It's the cunning craftiness which is false wisdom. Claiming it to be true. This is like that James chapter uh, 2 wisdom, which is this wisdom that comes 
not from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. It sounds right, but it's false. But it's also deceitful plotting, which is, in terms, the great image of this is a chameleon. Chameleons are great hunters because they can change their colors and adapt into whatever environment they're in to blend into the ground. Why? Because they hunt grasshoppers and other insects and they literally can lure them in with the color scheme. You can't see them, but then you're nabbed. That's why 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan will even transform himself into be an angel of light to where you might be tricked into thinking what you're seeing here is true and real when actually it's completely false. So you have to ask, why? What's the goal? What is Satan's objective? What is our enemy's objective? If God has a clear-cut objective for the church and He's commissioned us in in His name and in His power to take the gospel to the world that the world might know, what is it that Satan's objective would be? Obviously, to hinder that. To hinder our advancement. To move the individual away from God. He's always seeking to move you away from His Scripture, from the very person of God. He wants to move you away from the the fellowship and the family of God because once He's got you isolated, He is like that roaring lion seeking whom He may devour and He wants to isolate because that's where He devours. He ultimately, He wants to get you in the spot where you'll blame God, curse God. To cause you to believe false ideas and then adopt this ideology as your own and now claiming it's something that's true. He wants to bind you in fear, worry, and anxiety. And I know these terms that I just used, fear, worry, anxiety, panic, is very real. And I'm not here today to minimize any of those terms in any of your lives. But to understand something, these are objectives that Satan has in humanity to get us bound in the clutches of fear because once we are clammed up in fear, we will not advance. We will hunker down and if you just watch the consistency of Scripture, people who make fear-based decisions don't make good decisions. And generally people who are in the bondage of fear, they don't advance forward, they just hunker down and do not accomplish what God's intention was for them. Satan wants to get in your head. The one thing you can learn from Scripture in 1 Kings says that he doesn't know what you're thinking, but he can observe your behaviors. But he wants to steer your, your thought processes. After he makes observations of your life, he can make, uh, with these observations, he can begin to plant things in your pathway in order to steer your head and ultimately steer your heart because your heart and head are connected. Because where your heart is, that's where your feet will go, that's where your investments lie, that's what you're going to give your life to is what your heart is about. It's why Scripture teaches all this, that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Satan wants to get in your head. He wants to manipulate your mind, and he will do it via false teaching And he likes to entrap us when we are functioning like children being tossed about. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. And his concern for that church was they were being duped. False prophets, those who claimed to be apostles were coming among them. They were teaching these things that were vain and philosophical ideas. 
moving them away from Christ. And so he begins his letter to the church of Colossae, esteeming the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the Creator, Sovereign God. In chapter 2 of that same book, he provides warnings. He's warning the church of Colossae to beware. And here's what he's telling him in Colossians 2.4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Not the words of Christ. These are persuasive words luring you in like that chameleon trying to bait you in to catch you. And it sounds good. It sounds appealing. These persuasive words are now trying to instruct me to think, well, everyone does it this way. This is the... Why am I the unique one that would think contrary? Am I so arrogant to think that I'm different than everyone else? And so these words are very persuasive. In verse 8 he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you. See, there's that deceiver that's coming to cheat. They cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This is all intended to move away from the simple command that Jesus gave. Love the Lord God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your, what's the next one? Your mind, your strength. I want you to focus today for a moment on loving God with all of your mind. There is a battle that is raging for your mind. Satan wants to manipulate your thinking. He's going to use all kinds of vices to accomplish this, but he wants to manipulate your thinking to move you away from truth, move you away from the person of God, to move you away from the family of God, to move you away from the eternal purposes that God's designed for your life. He's constantly at work doing this manipulative efforts, and he does it through people. He does it through a lot of vices. Don't lose fact here that Peter, who was loved the Lord and was following faithfully after the Lord. But when Jesus told him and explained to the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be mistreated and miserably abused by people, ultimately be crucified. And if you remember what Peter told him, not so, Lord. And you know what Jesus answered to him? Get behind me, Satan. Because at that moment, Peter had availed himself to worldly, sensual thinking but not the word and the thought of Christ. He was not kingdom-minded, very worldly-minded. In his empathy of Christ, of course, who wants to see their friend go to Jerusalem and be crucified of all things and go through the abuses that Jesus went through? But Jesus declared this needs to happen, that our sin debt might be paid. But Peter, in in that moment, empathetic to Jesus' cause, missing the kingdom cause, See, that's how false doctrine comes sowing in and false ideas come into our life, so often through empathy. But it's not true. 2 Corinthians 10 teaches that for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This battle that we fight is not going to be fought with carnal or fleshly weapons. There's a spiritual battle. The devil is a spiritual being and he functions in that, and the demonics function in that realm. That's why we are taught in the book of Ephesians that we must put on this armor of God, 
which are all spiritual things. I'm going to put on a breastplate of righteousness. That's a spiritual breastplate. Putting on Christ Jesus himself. To, put, to lean in behind this great shield of faith that I might quench the fiery darts of the wicked. That I would put on this helmet of salvation. Protect my head. Remembering my salvation. Remembering the price that was paid for me. Remembering my Savior. Protect your head. Putting on this belt of truth. Because man, if my, if my belt's not on, my garment below me will fall. And as you try to traverse uphill... I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever tried to run uphill with like a loose thing? I did this once going fishing. It's a bad idea. It started raining miserably. So I put on my raincoat thing, my poncho. But I needed to go uphill. You try going uphill with a rain poncho, you step on the poncho, and it like face plants you right into the ground. Well, then you can't get back up again. I'm literally, I'm holding myself to the ground, and I cannot get up. So you end up, ultimately, you got to roll over and lay on your back in the most humble, pathetic position possible to get out from under your own poncho that, you pl- that you've uh, pinned yourself with. It's a great illustration of why you gird up your loins with truth because the fact is you're going to climb mountains in this life that are difficult moments. And without the belt of truth, bam! You land right on your face and you're pinned down and you can't even get up. And here's the weapons are not carnal, they're spiritual weapons. And they cast down, what are they doing here? It's pulling down strongholds. What are strongholds? Strongholds are these big fortresses or anything that relies on, that we rely on, or their arguments, their opinions, they're contrary to truth. And what else does it do? It's casting down these arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing them into captivity. It's it's taking these imaginations even, which becomes reasoning apart from Scripture. That's what imaginations are. I'm imagining something could happen. I'm living in the world of hypotheticals. All the what-ifs. Imagining things that are not even real. I fill in my blanks. There's always blanks in life. I have so many things today. I could make a long, long list of all the things that I'm interacting in today, I do not have an answer for. There's a gigantic question mark over each one of those things. Now, I can start filling in the blanks myself of what I think is going to happen, but you know what I'm doing now? I'm imagining something. The word imaginations doesn't ever show up positive in Scripture. Because why? It's reasoning apart from truth. And it takes all these high things that exalt itself, which is what? It's just pride. It's independence from God. I'm going to figure it out. How often do we say that when things go sideways? I just got to get things figured out. You can't figure it out. And it's like, I'm going to get it all figured out, and then I'm going to time out. That line of thinking, see, that sound, we hear that and we embrace it. It's an independence from God. It's pride but instead when we bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ now every thought is now subject to Christ and it runs through the sieve of scripture to discern is it true not true that's why the word of God is quick it's powerful sharper than any two-edged sword it pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it's even a discerner of the thoughts and intents 
of the heart, the thoughts of the heart. See how they're connected? The scripture can teach me, train me, grounds me in wisdom so that as everything in our lives is just flooding in against, I can run all things through the vein of what is true. Philippians 4 is a great instruction manual for this that finally, brethren, Paul teaches, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble or honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's where I need to spend my time meditating. You know, our culture doesn't do a lot of meditating. And I'm not talking about mm, kind of meditation where you sit cross-legged and hum. Not, not that kind. It's just even a chance to, med- to meditate means to be still. Just be still. To be quiet. It's a great word study sometimes. If you want to go home and do a Bible study of your own, look up the phrase, be still. Be quiet. Because here's what we struggle with in our culture today. To sit down and actually read the truth of Scripture and then chew on it. Meditate on it. Which means I'm going to contemplate it. What does this actually say? How do, what is this text wanting me to believe? Is there something here I am to do? Is there a warning for me to take heed to? And then start asking the questions. Have I seen this other places in the Bible? Have I heard these things in another place? Is there someone in the Bible that illustrates this reality so I could put flesh and bones to it and it makes sense to me? That's what happens when we meditate in the Word and you're just constantly chewing this. But here's here's the reality of our culture is we're we're constantly filled with noise. We, We read, maybe. We plug our pods in. And man, we've got noise going all the time. It may not even be bad things. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just asking you today to consider something. When are you quiet and still before the Lord to just meditate on His truth? Of what does His Word actually say? What does God's Word want me to believe? What does God's Word say for me to do? And is there something God is warning me of? Something that I have observed through Scripture and in life as we struggle through these invasive thoughts is Satan in his techniques and cleverness and cruelty likes to leverage trauma. Now the word trauma simply means by definition, stressful moments, frightening or distressing events. All of us in some way, shape, or form have probably faced some type of trauma. Now, a trauma for you may not feel like trauma to me, and probably likewise, mine may not feel that way to you, but it's very real to you. And here's why traumas matter. Because they they shape sometimes our our thinking because we establish a fear of this because we did not like how it felt in that moment and I never want to feel that way again. And anything that even starts to hint that I'm going to feel like that, I'm going to run away from it. It's kind of the fight or flight thing. 
and I'm going to run away. And then it's going to cause me to often start filling in the blanks with imaginations of all the hypotheticals of what could possibly be that aren't even real. But it feels like it could be real. And it creates a huge panic in our life and it creates an anxiety because this is starting to smell and feel and touch just like this anxiety I've had before, this trauma that I have faced before. I have these too. I'm not immune. It's like, well, you're the preacher guy. I guess none of this bothers you. No, that's not true. There are different traumas that I have faced in life that were very stressful or distressing moments for me that whenever something sounds like that or, or starting to feel like that again, I have to really train my head here and get back in the Word to focus because I find out that it will steal my sleep. I've got junk running in the background in my head all night long and I won't sleep. I may go days with barely any sleep at all. And I don't like it to be that way. I know that's not the way I want to live. That's not a healthy way to live. And so I'll lay there at night, at night and just process through scriptures and say, Lord, I know this is not true because this is what is true. And I have to now name these things and walk myself right back through what is true and ask God to restore rest in me and strengthen me and help me. And Lord, I just, I need you here. And I have to start speaking the truth of God's word into those moments. Traumas can come through natural disasters. They can be crimes against humanity. You've been maybe um, a victim of abuse, negligence, or cruelty. May come through uh, money or finances where at times you've had a great lack. Broken relationships. Abandonment. Hunger or exposure. Failure. Suffering or pain. Illness, death of someone you care deeply about, betrayal, being berated or shamed in front of others, unmet expectations, whether it's in, in your home, in your church, in your family, in your job. And I'm sure this list could just grow. I just named a few just to get your thoughts processed moving here of what is it that Satan likes to leverage? Because he does leverage. He likes to leverage these moments that have been painful in our past at some point that were distressful and cause us now to start thinking on that which is not true. And this is what I have to focus on. Philippians 4.8 Whatsoever is true. And this is what I first think. Okay. I can imagine if this whole thing just ran out the way I perceive it's going, that's not good. But that today is not true. That's not real. But what is real? And I can take now what is real and say, now Lord, what is my biblical response to what is true and what is real in this moment? What do I need to believe? What do I need to do? Is there something I need to stop doing based on what I know is to be true? Well, Satan likes to take and leverage these things, so he'll leverage through every voice imaginable. He'll leverage through the media. Now, I'm not here picking on any one of these things because they're all useful. But he'll use media. Do you realize that the average American today, average looks at their phone or checks their phone 96 times a day, average. So some way more, some way less. On average, you get a blank moment, bam, you'll reach for the phone. 
You're bored, you reach for the phone. You get a notification, you reach for the phone. We're constantly working this thing and we're checking and checking and checking. Every ESPN update, every news flash that happens in the world, and our minds are drinking in all this information nonstop. And we struggle to be quiet. And I'm now processing all this information that I wouldn't have even known. So here's the question I was asking is, there's, sometimes I become privy to things. And then I ask, well, how did I become privy to that? And did I even need to know that? And so this is now altering my thought processes. It's altering my sleep behaviors. And it's information that had I not gone fishing for it, I wouldn't have even known it. I actually did this to myself. It concerns me greatly when I read the statistical data behind children and, and media products. There's something that is luring about it. I've watched it in my, own, in my own home and it's very attractive. You get a phone in your hand and it's a video that goes to the next video, to the next video, to the next, and you find yourself, you can get in an endless loop. Games. And not teaching, about is, are, are games bad or videos bad? Not necessarily. None of this is like, whoa, Dwayne's now preaching legalism. No, I'm not. But if you have a young person in your home that wants to play a game, train at the same time the boundaries of when to put it down. And when it's time, you set the timer while they're really young and they're te teaching them self-control and they can't handle it. And when it's time to give it back and it's a big fight, it's obvious this thing has become an idol and they don't need it. And we need to train this process to just allow your young people to constantly be embedded in electronic gadgetry. Just think of the voices that are speaking into their head and we learn as adults, we see all this going on all the time. It's a massive trap for your kids. A fascinating study in Scripture is to watch how Satan likes to leverage for children. Every time. When God was on the move and doing awesome stuff with the nation of Israel, what does he do? He takes Pharaoh, he says, yeah, you can guys, and all you adults can go worship, leave your kids here. He wants those kids. When he was concerned about the, the movement of God, kill all the boy babies, and only Moses is left. When you watch this happen again, when Jesus the Messiah shows up, kill the babies, because now we've got problems. We've got a Savior coming on the scene. There's always a movement to take the children, to take their minds, to take their bodies, to take something from the kids. Why? Because it's Satan's program, and he does it all the time, whether it's through media products or whatever, but there's voices speaking. So parents, I want you to beware. Whether it's the news, whether it's people, some of us have issues with individuals in our life that, that provoke our thinking. And we need to establish some boundaries. Sometimes we have to get some help in these areas, by the way. This is why when you, you go, consult in the Word of God to speak the truth in love, sometimes you have to get some outside, somebody that sees it different than you do because they're not in it, and they can provide wise counsel of how to set some healthy boundaries in that particular matter, whether it's with events or people or things or media or whatever. Because here's what happens. This constant pounding causes us to question, well, does God even know what's going on? God doesn't see me. I'm invisible. God doesn't care about me. I must not even be a Christian. 
I must not even really be forgiven. And we begin to process things contrary to the Word. Something I found fascinating is watching people in Scripture that suffered what I deem as a massive trauma. It would affect me in a traumatic way. And how did they come out the other side of that thing without just being a mess? Let me illustrate a couple of things. I think of Joseph in the Old Testament who was sold out by his brothers. Ultimately ends up in prison falsely. Terrible things happen to him. But as the story unfolds, he ends up second in command of all of Egypt. He's now the man who's in charge of the food source for the Middle East. And yet his brothers, who were cruel, devised evil against him, now come hungry. Joseph could have very easily just shut them down and blown them off and treated them back with the same cruelty, measure for measure, like kind. But he didn't do that. He took a perspective here that was unique. And here's what it was. In Genesis 50, Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Here's his perspective. He didn't deny that what happened over here was cruel and it was evil. You meant this for evil. He doesn't have to live in denial. He doesn't have to suppress the truth as if it never happened, that somehow that would be more spiritual. No. He calls it for what it is, but he also gets to see, but God used that to redeem that, and let me just tell you how, because God threw all of that to save many people alive. What a different perspective. That God would allow these things in my life to ultimately accomplish this divine purpose. I think of Job who is an incredible story where Satan appears before God because he's accountable still. And God asks him, where have you been? He goes, oh, just walking up and down and to and fro in the earth. Which means unfettered. He's like a king in his kingdom and everybody just kind of does what he wishes. And God proposes something to him and says, have you considered my servant Job? Well, yeah, but you, I mean, you've put this protection around him. You've blessed him. Your grace and mercy abound in his life. But God knew Job's character. Job was a man of integrity. Job was a man who loved God and, and worshipped God and was devoted to God. And, and God gave him permission, gave Satan permission. You can mess with Job, but you can't kill him. So round one of Job's demise was that all ten of his kids died in a single moment. He was an extremely wealthy man who lost all of his wealth in one moment. All of his employees and all of his wealth. And to top it is even his wife told him to curse God and die, just be done, man. 
Satan comes back for round two and, and inflicts him with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. So now even his health is gone. He's a miserable, miserable man physically. This is trauma like we can't even wrap our head around sometimes. And God saw it. God knew it. And God is the one who set the boundaries for it. Why in the world would God do that? Does God not love Job? Is that even fair that you just let Satan wreck this guy's life? And at the end of the day, Job makes this statement out of his integrity and his love for God. He says, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. And he gets to the end of the book of Job and we get to see Job giving an answer. And Job answered the Lord in chapter 42, verse 1 and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And God's divine purpose was accomplished because look at us. Here we are all these thousands of years later and we're still talking about Job and God, how God, what God accomplished in his life and how God's divine purpose was fulfilled and how the patience of Job and Job got to be still and wait and see the blessings of God. And yeah, did God restore children to him? Yes, he still lost 10 kids. He's still brokenhearted over his 10 kids that didn't make it. But God was doing some miraculous work there to help us see what's happening in the spiritual realm. But God also is doing some incredible work here to see that the purposes of God are accomplished greatly. There are things we can't even begin to understand. And at the end of the day, with Job losing it all, he says that none of your purposes can be withheld from you. God's purposes are accomplished. With Joseph... It was to save many people alive. With Job, after it all, he said that your purposes would be accomplished. With Jeremiah, oh, what a story of a guy who's just been born from day one to be a preacher to a nation that will not listen, and he knew from the beginning they would never listen. Israel was sliding into idolatry, and he was to come as the prophet to say, guys, here's the deal. Either turn back to the Lord from your idolatry, or God's going to wreck the city. He'll tear this city down by the Babylonian Empire. And everybody hated jo Jeremiah for what he had to say. They put him in prison. They threw him in the sewer system of the, of the city. They wanted to get him as far away from here as they could get him and shut him up. And at the end of the day, Jeremiah gets to be an eyewitness to watching Jerusalem fall just as he prophesied it would. And it broke his heart. Because the people wouldn't hear the preaching. He would, they wouldn't listen to the word. And he writes this lamentation. He laments the, the fall of Israel. In chapter 3, verse 20, he said, My soul still remembers and sinks within me, and this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. After all of that you've gone through, and still what He sees in it is the salvation of the Lord holding true, just like God said He would. That His purposes would be accomplished. That this salvation would be made known. We remember Peter and his failure in not standing fast with Jesus to the finish line, but Jesus restoring him back in his ministry. 
And Peter makes this great statement. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Resist him. Stand fast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to this eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Unto what? To Him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Look at the perspective. All of this trouble, all of these sorrows, all of this trauma that's happened... Unto what? That the purposes of God would be established. That God's salvation would be made known. That the glory of the Lord would be revealed. And you know what? The Apostle Paul says the same thing. After becoming a Christ follower and a preacher, missionary, church planter, and everywhere he went was trouble, trouble, trouble. Because some wanted to hear these messages of Jesus and some hated him for the message of Jesus. And he, he sums it up and says in 2 Corinthians 4, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. What's the point? That the world might know Jesus through us. Through the preaching, through our life, through our ministry. That was the goal. So I look at these mechanisms that Satan tries to leverage. He knows the struggles. He knows the traumas. He knows the hurts and the pains. And he'll take each one of those and try to twist that into something that then victimizes each one of us. Or turn us to where we will be oppressed or will suppress that and act like it never happened. When you watch each one of these men, and I could have listed this, we could have done this all day, and I, I almost think we should. But you watch, none of them minimize the struggle, the reality of the hurt and the pain. They don't minimize it. But at the end of the day, here's what their observation is. God accomplishes His divine purpose. God brings His salvation and makes it known. God is the one that ultimately gets the glory And God does these things and allows these things even in my life and works these things together for good not only in my own, but that the the Word of God would spread forward and that even through my body the Gospel would be manifested. So here's my summary. What would it look like to love God with all of your mind? That all of my thinking would be that which is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, praiseworthy, reputable. That that would be my thoughts. Knowing that I have an enemy that's trying to come against me with that which is not true. Taking and leveraging things in my own life that have been pain and hurt somewhere along the way to now forge me against God. 
to lure me away from God, from his word, from his family, from his study of who he is as a person. What does it look like right now for you to love God with all of your mind? 